0: James Kent, your movie, Morlock. I'm back. I know people are worried, right? They're like, I haven't heard from him. Did he get COVID? What's going on? Well, I did not get COVID. Um, but, you know, it's, it's kind of a weird time, right? And uh, I've been busy with work stuff, and it's hard to motivate uh, to get the podcast up and running when it's just me. Um, Without a guest, it's kind of hard. Not impossible, but it isn't as easy as the days when uh, Teal and I were doing it. Though it wasn't always easy (laughs) for the two of us to get together, but I think there was more of an impetus for me to uh, find the time to put something together. Uh, And like I said, this is a really... We've entered a very challenging part um, where it's hard to see movies that aren't available. And... I don't have a theater, as I've said several times, locally. So to me, to go to a movie, it's already a challenge. And then add COVID to the mix and what's been going on in the last few weeks with Omicron. Now it's you know, you're really taking a risk. Um, you know, I think it's an interesting time with most movies that are coming out are not doing well, except for one movie, which is Spider-Man. No Way Out. I think it's going to be No Way Out uh, for... Covid. If you went this past weekend, where made oh two hundred and fifty million dollars. That's a lot. It's a lot, um, but it is concerning because you know ticket prices. Let's let's say we're going to give it an average of ten dollars a ticket. I think it's more, especially with these premium theaters. But we're just going to go average ten dollars a ticket, and that would be twenty five million people went to see Spider Man in theaters this past weekend. And I'm bringing it up because I haven't really seen any articles on this. And I don't think you'd ever be able to measure uh, what the true impact is, but I think we should watch carefully over the last uh, the next few weeks because it takes, you know, anywhere from three to seven to 10 days for symptoms of COVID to show up. And it is just uh, statistically impossible, just impossible for it to be that there wasn't somebody who was infected with COVID that attended at least one performance somewhere. I would say odds are that a lot of COVID-infected people attended screenings this past weekend, and that's just going to have a tremendous impact. Certainly, if you wear a mask, an N95 mask, you might be a little bit safer. That's what I've done. When I have ventured out to the theater uh, in the past month, and I'm going to tell you about uh, some of those trips. Uh, but if you didn't wear a mask, and certainly if you're not vaccinated, I mean, you're really taking your chances to just go see a Spider-Man movie. And I want to see it. My kids would love to see it. But we have to travel at least an hour away to go see Spider-Man No Way Out. And with the crowds and the Omicron happening, it's just not going to It's not going to happen. We're probably going to have to see it uh, when it first hits streaming. Uh, I think my wife said, you know what? We'll pay the $20 or whatever it is as soon as it's available so the kids can watch it. And I think that's a fair trade-off. But I really would like to see it. You know, I would like to see what all the hype is about. Um, And, you know, I've seen all the other Spider-Man movies in the theater, though. I hate, hate, hated the last one. thought it was a piece of garbage. But I think this one will be better. And I hear it's pretty good. So, you know, what are you going to do? Anyways, I'm not seeing that. And apparently, other movies that are out that people aren't seeing, Uh, there's the Guillermo de Taros uh, Nightmare Alley. I I do want to see that movie, um, but it is a bomb. Nobody's seeing it, probably because they're going to spend their uh, dollars and risk getting COVID, I guess they're going to risk it for the one that they want to see the most, which is Spider-Man. However, since nobody is seeing Nightmare Alley, you're probably a lot safer (laughs) if you go to that theater and see that. So, you know, if you really want to get out to the theater, that's what you got to do. You got to go see these movies that no one's going to. Uh, And I kind of took that approach. I wanted, I don't know why I wanted to see this movie, but I did want to see House of Gucci, the Ridley Scott film uh, with Lady Gaga in it, and uh, Adam Driver, and so, and Jared Leto was in it too, and Al Pacino, Jeremy Irons, you know, so it was a kind of exciting cast, kind of feels like one of those big important movies that would come out during the holiday season, and you'd go see it, and it'd be packed with like older folks. I went and saw it a couple of weeks, I guess, after it had come out, and I did have to go over an hour to see it. I went to see it in uh, basically where Dartmouth is in New Hampshire. There's a little theater called the Nuggets Theater. And they have like a whole like, you know, air circulation system that they install to make things safer. They also will only sell 50% of the seats. And when you get there and you pick your seat, they cross out seats around you. Uh, so that no one sits next to you. So I thought that was pretty good. And again, when I went to see it, there was maybe 10 people in the theater, and I wore my mask the entire time. So I felt pretty safe. And when I watched this, this is, again, several weeks ago now, and the uh, Omicron hadn't really started spreading through the country. And I guess I didn't feel the need to jump on the mic right away because, you know, the honest truth is it wasn't that great. I had really hoped to get in touch with that uh, the Shannon person uh, who has come on the show a few times, and we were going to talk about it, but I just wasn't that enthusiastic, quite honestly, about House of Gucci. Uh, the thing is, is that Ridley Scott, and now we have to really look at his big filmography, He it's not that he's not that good. It's just he doesn't have a lot of style. Uh, he seems to be riding the coattails of two very artistic ventures in his early days of filmmaking, which would be Alien and Blade Runner. You know, visually stunning. They really had some style, kind of said, hey, a particular director did this movie. Uh, his first feature film, The Duelists, was really great, uh, too. And I, I took me years to see that. But again, if you look at those three movies in a row, this guy was clearly somebody who had a vision. Uh, he's had some successes, ups and downs over the years. Uh, obviously, Gladiator was a big smash, and I was never a huge fan of that. I felt like it's very CGI-laden, and it's just an okay movie. I, I was shocked that, <laughs> that it got Oscars uh, for Best Picture and Best Actor and all that stuff, but uh, a lot of people love it. Um, he also did The Martian. Uh, you know, That's a good movie, but there's not a lot of, I would say, directorial flair in it, and... Thelma and Louise. That was kind of a game changer in in its day. I rewatched that in the past year. My wife had never seen it, so we watched it, and it's a little stale. I mean, it was a, an important movie back in the day, but it's definitely a little tainted. It's a woman's story that I feel has been directed by a man with his sort of spin on it, and I think if you were to maybe you know look at a reboot these days that might be a good film to reboot um but done with a woman director and maybe even a woman cinematographer Uh, i think that would just and a a woman editor like i would go all female in the uh heavy aspects of the production and maybe that would be interesting Uh, like i said it's not a bad movie um there was a lot to like in it Uh, certainly the performances by gina davis and susan sarandon those are great but again it, 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 he directs it almost if it's a little bit of a comedy, even though it's supposed to be more tragic. Uh, and I was surprised at, not that it was funny, because I remember when I first saw the movie back when it came out in theaters, that it was funny. But now it just felt a little hammy in times. And it just, uh, it, it didn't feel like the right tone. So, that was interesting that I would have that reappraisal. Um, And then, of course, he made Black Hawk Down, and I do think that's a great film. Um, I do think he showed a lot of technique uh, for directing action. I do know that there's people that don't like that movie. I do, and I have seen it in the last couple years, and uh, again, and, and enjoyed it, but... Really, the last 10, 15 years, I mean, he's made a ton of movies, and there's a lot of stinkers <laughs> in his filmography. And even worse than that, in some regards, is that they're just kind of mediocre. And I, I feel like that's where House of Gucci falls in. For a little bit, towards its the beginning, there's a lot of energy, and I actually thought, hey, maybe Ridley Scott, he's back a little bit. He's he's found a, a little bit of fun tone, and it's an interesting, weird love story between uh, Lady Gaga's character and Adam Driver's character, and you're trying to figure out, does Lady Gaga's character like this guy, genuinely fall in love with him, or is she, you know, trying to get her heels into the cash? And that's when it gets a little bit murky as we go along, the movie then starts to kind of paint Lady Gaga's character as that bit of a manipulator, um, wanting power. And then, because the movie is like, what, two hours and 35 minutes, I think, it feels like, uh uh-oh, we've gone on too long, we got to hurry up and resolve this. And that's where I feel that the movie collapses, because it's building up to something. You start to see the downfall of the family, and then all of a sudden, Adam Driver's character gets sort of wise to what lady gaga is all about and then he doesn't want anything to do with her and then she's very upset and he she gets worse and worse as uh, he's kind of saying goodbye to her and that's kind of what initiates her wanting him dead but the motivations are a little bit askew there and i just don't really like it that much and Like I said, I can't give it a really strong recommendation, Uh, though I think Lady Gaga, like I think all the performances are pretty good. Lady Gaga, I I respect that she is carefully choosing roles um, in her career. She's not just taking whatever, and it's paying off. I mean, I thought she was sensational in The Star is Born. And I think she's pretty good here, but I don't think she's as good as she might get an Oscar nomination. But uh, and I haven't seen enough performances this year to maybe say whether that's warranted or not. But I think it's a little bit over the top. Uh, and again, I, I read somewhere where someone felt like she was doing like kind of a Russian accent more than an Italian one. And then I, I would think that in times I kind of agree. <laughs> it's a little bit ridiculous. And uh, I bring that up because that seems to be this theme that's going on um, in, in films these days about people that are like one nationality playing another. Um, you know, there's this thing with the House of Gucci. Well, you have people that are all various nationalities playing these characters, and it's an Italian family, but nobody's Italian in the movie. Like, they're all like just using Italian accents, uh, which is kind of, in a weird way, silly, but I think that's a Hollywood thing. They've always done that. If they're... They do the accent so people can kind of go, oh, yes, I get it. They're they're Italian and they're in Italy and we have to imagine that they'd be speaking Italian. Um, I think the best performance in the whole movie is Jared Leto. Yeah, he's over the top and maybe that's a little bit askew. For the rest of the film, he seems to be maybe on his own little groove, but I thought his performance was kind of hilarious, and I did like his accent and the makeup is pretty amazing in this film. Like he is transformed into this other guy. I don't know. I it's like a, still it's a mystery of what he's doing in that movie. I, I actually feel like Al Pacino a little bit. He's over the top in a fun way. Adam Driver, I think he's pretty restrained uh, and good in the movie. I mean, he he is a good actor, but somehow I feel like him and Lady Gaga are kind of in one movie and everybody else is in another movie. And then I go back to the director, Ridley Scott, who just didn't have a good beat on what this film should be. You know, he made that other film that I thought was pretty terrible about the Getty um, kidnapping. And this is maybe an improvement on that, but, uh, you know, again... Ridley Scott. He keeps making the films. He's in his 80s, and he's still making them, but is he making any good ones? Not so sure. So, the next film that I saw was Steven Spielberg's West Side Story, and I really wanted to see this film in the theater. I've been curious about it for years since I heard that this was a project he was going to undertake, and I was curious for these reasons, is that now Steven Spielberg, he was probably like 73 when he made the movie, and it was supposed to come out a year ago. COVID delayed it, so he would have been just turning 74. Instead, this year, he's turning 75. And, you know, the reality is, how many more movies will Steven Spielberg make? No one knows, but it's certainly... He's slowed down over the years. Uh, that's, that's a definite. I mean, he used to make a movie a year, or sometimes he'd make, like, two films in a year. There's been a couple years where he did that. And he'd, like, you know, for instance... In 1993, he does Jurassic Park, and then he follows that up with Schindler's List at the end of that year. In 2005, he did War of the Worlds in the summer, and then he had Munich at the end of the year. So sometimes he had a lot of energy and was doing, you know, two films. That doesn't happen too much, and his production has been way off in the last several years, and that, you know, makes sense. And, you know, the product he's put out is not been the the greatest. Uh, He made one film that I couldn't even get through. The only film of Steven Spielberg's that I did not see in the theater and had no desire to really see it and couldn't get through it was the BFG. Um, So I think that was a sort of a miss. Uh, He made Bridge of Spies. I thought was okay, but it was just, you know, mid-tier Spielberg. He made The Post, which again felt sort of like a TV movie. I mean, I don't think Spielberg was doing as well as he might have done with a film like that back in the 80s. And then he did Ready Player One, which wasn't bad, but it's not a movie you want to watch over and over again. And it sort of was another exercise in why, why why are you making this movie? And realized that Spielberg may not have the pulse of what people want um, anymore. And that's just, you know, it's a sign of where he was the idol for kids my age in the 80s. And, you know, the idols, they grow up and maybe Tarantino has a point about filmmakers when they get older they're just not as good and he doesn't want to be that so who knows but i do think that spielberg is a craftsman and he knows how to put things together and i was very curious to see what would he do with a musical i was just kind of surprised that west side story uh you know it's a classic film of course it's also a classic broadway musical but the film you know it garnered like what Eight or ten Oscars, and cinematography is great. Choreography, amazing. Has great performances by Rita Moreno, and it's just very famous and iconic. And so, that's a tall order because you have to say to yourself, "Well, why are you remaking this movie? What's new? What is it? Why does it need to be remade?" I mean, older people, people are even my age. We we've all seen the movie several times, and so why would we want to go out to the theaters? Now, of course, when he undertook this, COVID wasn't around. And it makes it even more of a question mark as to if you've got to go out to a theater, risk potentially getting this virus, do you want to go see a movie that you could watch the original in your home anytime? And I think that's probably problem number one. Uh, for West Side Story. Uh, But I was very curious, again, what did he do, right? Uh, And then the critics seemed to like it. I think if the critics had hated the movie, I probably would have said, you know what, I guess I'm going to wait for the home theater because I don't want to risk getting the virus. But as soon as I heard that it wasn't doing well that opening weekend, on the Sunday, I was like, well, what if I go to a matinee? I bet it's not going to be very busy. Uh, So I went an hour away. Uh, to a theater over the border in uh, New York from Vermont. And it's not like a huge big theater. It has a nice screen, though. And it was not very busy at all. I was right. So, again, I felt pretty good, and I had my N95 mask on, so I felt pretty protected. And I watched the film, and I was, uh, I guess I was pleasantly surprised. It, it's a really good movie. Um, it's just enjoyable Entertainment. Um, it is, of course, you know, the Broadway musical. There are a few changes. Some were made sort of to keep it a little bit more in line with the actual Broadway musical, and then others. It's just uh, Spielberg and the person who adapted the screenplay, uh, Tony Kushner, who's worked with Spielberg in the past. He made some decisions to kind of maybe correct some problems, some problematic moments in the original. Broadway uh, musical and movie, and of course the movie, uh, the original 1961 film, is very problematic <laughs> because a lot of the actors playing the uh, the sharks, the the the, the Puerto Rican uh, contingent in the story, were not actual Hispanic people or uh, Latino or 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 you know Puerto Rican, uh, especially the lead actress Natalie Wood, who didn't even sing in the movie, so she was brought on strictly for her star power and when you're you know cake and makeup on actors to make them look more latino that's that's a concern i would say and so that has not aged <laughs> at all well but you know the film is i think a lot of people watch the movie still enjoy it and recognize that it was a different time uh, though it does call into question uh, this is what happens to me i watch these films and i go what a terrible time. Like, why? Like, what was what was going on in these producers' heads that they felt like you couldn't represent people the way they should have been represented? It was a really kind of horrible practice. And it just shows you what, I guess, a white male-driven uh, studio system was all about and, and that nobody even blinked an eye. So, yes, it could be corrected. But whether or not we needed a new West Side Story, I think that is definitely debatable, because even as I enjoyed this movie immensely and thought that it is a really high artistic achievement and that Spielberg, he hasn't been this good in years, I still recognize the fact that it probably didn't even need to be made. I mean, it's a lot of money to put out just so you could correct a few mistakes. And then, of course, there are people that want to pick the film apart because of what it still doesn't do. Um, And I think this is where the problem I have is that people... Are arguing that you know Spielberg didn't do A, B, and C to make this film. I guess more correct. You know, some of the uh, actors are still not Puerto Rican. It's not an all Puerto Rican cast for the sharks, um, and that, of course, is a spillover argument on *In the Heights*, where there was a lot of complaints that it didn't perfectly represent the community that the story was about and there seems to be that very important uh, contingent of people that really need to have full authenticity and i think that's somewhat ridiculous because you know hollywood is hollywood and you know you, it's just it's just not realistic in all aspects and the fact of other areas is that this is the this is the musical. This is the story. Um, it's always been a kind of in a weird way. It's like it's not. It's light entertainment. It's a musical, right? So it's a fantasy. It's not real life, and it's also based on Romeo and Juliet. Got a feeling that some of the younger reviewers that I read who are doing takedown pieces on it, I'm not sure they even knew <laughs> West Side Story is based on Romeo and Juliet. Um, so some of the machinations of the plot are the way they are because they're following the Romeo and Juliet arc. Um, The only counter-argument to that is that the very end of the movie deviates from Romeo and Juliet a bit. I've always, always had a problem with that. that. I think maybe, of course, the musical would be a little bit more tragic if it followed the full Romeo and Juliet path. But I think some of the other things that go on in the story... They go on for the sole reason that they're trying to keep the story as parallel to Romeo and Juliet as they can. So, you know, it, Romeo and Juliet's a little bit of an imperfect story. <laughs> I mean, in the in the actual uh, Romeo and Juliet play, the actors in question or the characters in question are 13 and 14 years old. Um, so, <laughs> you know, times have changed. And that's always going to be the pill that you have to swallow with West Side Story is – that you have to buy in to the fact that Maria and Tony would find love at first sight. And in a movie, you, you try to get the chemistry, I guess, as you can. And I don't think that there was very much chemistry in 1961's version with... Natalie Wood and Richard Boehmer and there's really not a tremendous amount of chemistry between Rachel Zegler and Ansel Elcourt. and I think that maybe is one of the probable casting failings for Spielberg in this was casting Ansel Elgort as Tony. Only because, well, A, he's already in his like mid-late 20s and Rachel Zegler is like 20 years old and she actually looks a little bit younger. Um, And she probably, I guess, was probably like just 18 when they filmed the movie. So... They wanted to have somebody that was a name, right? And so, El Gort's been in a lot of stuff, so he's kind of a, a name. But I think that if they, the rest of the cast is pretty much an unknown, except for, say, Rita Moreno and a couple of the other bit parts, they may have done themselves a better service had they found somebody brand new to play. Tony it wouldn't be as distracting, perhaps. And then, of course, I think after he was also cast and they were shooting, is when some controversy came out about Ensel Elcourt uh, maybe going out with somebody who had been seventeen, and you know whether that was like an inappropriate sexual relationship. I mean, come on, L- let's let's put those things aside. That's that's silly. You you're having revisionist history. That Spielberg didn't know any of that controversy when he was cast, so. If somebody's staying away for that, then they were going to stay away from the movie no matter what. So, just when you hear those people, just dismiss them. I give you permission. Anyways, uh, you know, he's a little flat. I mean, he's not my favorite actor. I don't think he's that great. Uh, But I didn't think he was bad. I thought he was okay. I thought he could hold a tune. And uh, Rachel Zegler as Maria, she's great. I thought she was pretty fantastic. Ariana DeBose playing Anita. Thought she was pretty good. I mean, you know, she's getting a lot of Oscar buzz. I don't think she was that great, but, you know, whatever. Uh, Rita Moreno gets to play the shop owner uh, or the widow of the shop owner in this case. And uh, she's Valentina. So there's like a sort of a different role written for her. She's great in it. I mean, it's a small role, but I mean, she's great. So, you know, will she get that sort of like, uh, oh, would be cool to give her an Oscar nomination? Yeah, She might. Um, but anyway, I don't really have any complaints of the casting. Um, but I wasn't wowed by any of the casting, except for maybe Rachel Zegler. I thought she was great. She certainly, if I had to look at it, things that were better than the original movie, she was definitely an improvement over Natalie Wood, top notch. But they reimagined so many of the musical numbers that what's great is it. It kind of you get a different take on something, and so you can have your take from the original West Side Story and enjoy that. But then you can also enjoy what Spielberg does now. So even at the beginning when, you know, the whole opening of the film, I mean, it's not like it's completely different. It follows the same kind of path, but it's imagined and shot in a completely different way. And I mean, and there's where um, Janusz Kaminski, the longtime cinematographer of Spielberg, sometimes I complain about his cinematography, and then other times it's masterful. And in this particular movie, West Side Story, it is masterful. Just the textures and the colors that he does, this sort of ability to make the film look a little bit like it was from the early 60s, and yet... The realness at the same time where you don't feel like you're on just sound stages the whole time. It feels more like real than, say, some of the things in West Side Story, which felt very set-like. And the way that Janusz Kaminski's camera is able to move. And this is where I think him and Spielberg working together. It's such a directorial triumph. There's another song, uh, Cool, that in the movie is played after the big rumble. And I'm not saying that I like that a little bit better. It's just because that's such a fantastic sequence of choreography in that garage set that I just love that. But since Spielberg knows he couldn't top that, he completely does it differently. It's actually earlier in the movie, and it adds a new tension between Tony and Riff, And I thought what he does is really cool. Like, it was like, oh, I didn't think of the song that way. And so instead of sort of a come down number after all of the intensity of the rumble, instead it helps build tension as to what's to come. And I think that's what Spielberg does pretty good in this West Side Story is that by moving certain numbers earlier before the rumble, there's a lot of buildup. So the rumble has more impact and then what results afterwards, even though the problem is there aren't a lot of songs left after the rumble, Um, not stuff that's like really as good as memorable. Although I thought the sequence of I Feel Pretty was done better in the new Spielberg version than it was in the original. Um, So again, I think if you're a fan of the original film or the musical, it's definitely worth your time. If you've never seen it, if you know nothing about West Side Story, I think you're gonna knock your socks off. Um, I really do. And if you could see it in the theater, that would be great. I don't think it's going to happen. And that's too bad. I mean, look, in a perfect world with no COVID, I would have loved to have seen West Side Story on a big IMAX screen. I can tell you that while the theater was not very crowded, there were definitely people who did not know the text. They did not know West Side Story. They didn't know it was part of Romeo and Juliet. And some of the events that happen in the movie, you could hear verbally people were shocked at certain things and there was weeping and stuff. So like the movie had a lot of impact and power and I thought that was pretty cool. So I got to see the film and I really do encourage people maybe to at least catch it when it's streaming. I think you're going to be surprised and it'll probably be one of those movies that you're going to watch and go like, oh, I wish I'd seen that in the theater. I really feel like more than anything, this is the film that people will watch and be like, oh, I wish I could have seen it on the big screen. Um, And that's why I wanted to go see it. I love seeing films in the theater. I'd see every film in the theater if I could. But, you know, it is what it is, as they say at the end of the day. So the last film that I've seen in the theater, and this happened a week ago, was I got to go to Boston. I, I drove in for this evening only, and I drove home and got home very late to the Coolidge Corner Theater in Brookline to see a special 70 millimeter screening of Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice. This was a bucket list for me. I knew that he had done at least one 70 millimeter print of Inherent Vice for its original release. And then that print's been kicking around. And I'm not sure why he did it, but I think it's just, he really likes the format. And he of course shot the master in 70 millimeter and then had it projected. And because of the intensity and the sharpness of shooting on 70 millimeter and then projecting it, those scenes between Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix, uh, very close up, it was just, it's the most intense experience you're going to have in a theater seeing the master that way. So Inherent Vice was shot in 35. Why would he bother to do a blow up of 70? Like, what was the purpose? It's not a scope film. A lot of people misunderstand well, wouldn't you wouldn't it have to be a widescreen movie for 70? No. As a matter of fact, if it's like a two three five film, that doesn't quite fit the aspect ratio of a seventy millimeter either. And so you either have to uh, frame it so you lose some of the seventy millimeter in order to preserve the aspect ratio, or you do a blow up where you take off portions of the side. It's all very complicated. But if you have a 185 film, you can really uh, approximate. The 70 millimeter frame a lot closer, and you won't lose as much of the. You, you can leave some of the negative on the sides and keep the aspect ratio, and you get a nice big image. So, what do you get? Well, you're taking 35 millimeter, you're doubling the size from 35 millimeter to 70, so you will see details sharper. If you have a big theater, and this is why 70 millimeter was created in the first place, is that for big, big, big theaters, projectors pretty far away. You lose brightness by the time the image leaves the projector and gets to the screen. Well, 70 millimeter allows more light to go through the celluloid, and so it's a brighter image. And for those big screens and the big theater, instead of it muddy, it's nice and sharp. The only way you're going to get that, 70 millimeter. And then, of course, the third most important thing is the sound, which used to be they would put magnetic strips on the sides, and you could have six tracks because you had all of that extra room with the bigger negative. You could have, you could leave space on the sides to have six tracks. That doesn't happen anymore. But what you can do, and what they do do for seventy millimeter, is produce a special mix, a DTS surround mix, for the fact that if it's being shown in a theater that was used to projecting 70 millimeter it can probably handle a representation of that six distinct tracks so you get a sound that's very much like the intensity of the old mag strip 70 millimeter um so that's really cool as well you're not going to hear the same kind of sound mix on a 35 millimeter film or these digital films because you know these little box theaters they know they can't handle very much so they basically do either a 5.1 or a 7.1 mix And it's the frequencies on the top and bottom are cut off so that it doesn't blow out the speakers in these little tiny little uh, multiplexes. Um, Again, not the case of the 70 millimeters. So I really wanted to check out Inherent Vice. I saw it in the theater when it was first released. uh, It came out only in a few theaters in December of 2000. Yeah, 2014. And so January of 2015, I was still living in Massachusetts, Coolidge Corner, Got a 35 millimeter print of it. I went to see it with my friend then and enjoyed it, but the movie is kind of a puzzle. I knew I liked it, but I also knew that there was just, it needed to be viewed more and more times before I could really appreciate it. And I did. Um, Basically, through streaming over the years, I've watched it an additional four times at least. And I really appreciate the movie. I've also read the book reading the book and then re-watching the movie after reading the book, you totally appreciate what Paul Thomas Anderson did in the adaptation. And what I think throws people is is they want it to be like The Big Lebowski, um, because it's got all sorts of weird, wacky plot with a sort of stoner protagonist, uh, private investigator. But the thing is, is that The Big Lebowski, though it has a few dream sequences in the movie, it's based pretty much in a weird, wacky, but real world, the characters are supposed to be real. And they're not uh, a sort of imaginations going out of the mind of Jeff Bridges. I mean, these are real people that he's interacting with and a real sort of shaggy dog detective story. It's a little bit more complicated in Vice, Vice, And again, there's probably an interpretation you could get from reading the book in Heron Vice, and then what Paul Thomas Anderson's adaption is. And that's the secret, is that what you see on the screen is highly suspect. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix's character is a very unreliable narrator, and the movie itself is narrated by somebody who is a character in the book, but a figment of Joaquin Phoenix's imagination in the movie. Uh, the character is sorteleger, of but he call her Liege, so Sortelie, of I guess is her name, and played by the singer Joanna Newsom. And the first time you watch the movie, it can be very hard to pick out the fact that she isn't real. She disappears from the screen. She may be in the car talking to him, and then she's gone in the next shot. And these are very subtle clues. What I like is Paul Thomas Anderson is not overtly telling you that this, that, and the other thing aren't real. But a lot of the names of the characters are not names that you would ever have in real life. The situations are just strangely askew. Somebody is talking, and it sounds a little normal, and then they say something that's completely not normal. And what you realize is the main character is going through some sort of a grief process. He's lost a loved one. In this case, he has lost the love of his life. Shasta Faye Hepworth, this character, shows up at the beginning of the movie, and she's going away on a trip. And then she seems to be missing and people are looking for her. Then she kind of comes back. But once you've seen it a few times, it becomes fairly obvious that this is a person from Joaquin Phoenix. He plays this guy, Doc Portello, Larry Doc Portello, private eye and stoner hippie. And it's pretty clear that she's probably not alive and that something bad happened to her. And, The journey that we're actually taken on is a mishmash of him trying to sort through what happened. It's very unclear a lot of times exactly what has happened. There's various people that have sort of tragic events like him in the movie. Um, There's a character played by Jenna Malone, Hope Harlingen, and she's looking for her husband, Coy Harlingen, and they are... Like ex-heroin addicts, he is supposed to be dead, but maybe he faked his own death, and so Doc goes looking for him, everything seems to be tied up somehow with the other person he's looking for, Shasta Faye Hepworth, played by Katherine Waterston, and again, that story is parallel to his story, and it's a mishmash of like, again, perhaps these are not real people, but they're sort of a substitute for him trying to find uh, Shasta Faye Hepworth and discovering that she was murdered. Um, again, there's like five different plot developments, all kind of mishmashing. Uh, there's a great performance by Josh Brolin, who plays this cop, uh, Bigfoot Björnson. And the question is, again, he also is dealing with some loss, but it also is a question of whether or not he and Joaquin Phoenix, who seem to be kind of a yin and yang and they're at odds with each other, but they also have an understanding, there's a potential that they're the same person, that Bigfoot Bjornson is a part of Joaquin Phoenix's subconscious as well. Um, So who is the real Doc Sportello? It's not entirely sure. Again, Paul Thomas Anderson is not here to wrap up things for you. And that makes this movie a super, super puzzling challenge. I just love taking the challenge because along the way... Even if you decide not to kind of go with that weird interpretation that everything is subjective and you're not sure exactly what's going on, you can still enjoy the movie. I mean, there is a plot that kind of gets wrapped up. But I think that what really confuses people is the fact that by the end of the movie, it unravels and it's a little bit more sinister and dark. And people, I don't think, like that. They don't want things that aren't wrapped up or easy to digest. Um, So it's a very weird movie. I didn't expect very many people were going to be there when I saw this. There wasn't very many people there when I first watched the movie. But much to my surprise, and I don't know if it was necessarily a pleasant surprise, but the Coolidge Corner Theater, their main house has got to be about somewhere in like 450 to 500 seats. And there was a good 300 plus people there by the time the movie started. So there's a huge crowd. And of course, with COVID raging, that wasn't necessarily what I was planning for. Um, But I did wear my mask, my N95 the whole time. And also the Coolidge Corner does a really cool thing where you had to show proof of vaccination to go there. And that definitely was um, a decision maker for me. If they didn't, I probably wouldn't have gone um, because the more people, the more concerned, which brings me back to my Spider-Man discussion, right? If I was going to see Spider-Man, I would want to see it in a theater where you had to show proof of vaccination. And usually only the art theaters are the ones doing that. But at the same time, this is probably the most people that I've been exposed to in over two years or almost two years. While that was a little bit of an anxiety thing for me at first, pretty quickly, there was that sense of this is the way things used to be. People getting excited about a movie and coming together to see something that upon original release, it didn't do very well, but they're fans of it. So they're all going to see this film. And that made an exciting sort of unique communal experience. I was surprised that the curator of the Coolidge, he got up at the beginning and he asked how many people were seeing it for the first time. And I would say more than half of the theater raised their hand. So I was surprised. But at the same time, I recognized that these people don't know exactly what they're going to get when they see this movie. So I thought that was kind of funny. And there was definitely sort of a weird reaction um, from the theater. I I think people would have laughed more had it been non-COVID times and they could have really uh, relaxed and enjoyed themselves, but I don't think people, when they're wearing masks and they don't want to laugh too loud and spread the virus. So, you know, it was a bit muted. And anyway, uh, the movie comes on. And what the curator told us, and this was a surprise to me, was that back in June, the studio struck a brand new print. This was a brand new 70 millimeter print, probably only shown a couple of times because there haven't been a ton of screenings going on for 70 millimeter at theaters. Uh, So again, this thing looked almost brand new. And so part of me was looking forward to a maybe slightly banged up print as strange as that might sound because I thought it would really lend itself to the fact that this movie takes place in like 1972, 70, 71, 72, somewhere around there. And I thought that would have been kind of cool that the the movie was a little bit banged up. Um, But instead, I got a brand new print. And this thing was so great looking. It it was staggering. I mean, it was so sharp, so bright. The details were just so noticeable. Um, I really liked the way that the texture of the film stock looked. And you really felt like you were seeing, you know, a film, Uh, And I think that's what was so cool. And one of the things when you see a movie projected on 35, especially these days, you're so used to seeing a digital projection that you're first kind of shocked by the flicker that you get. And it almost feels like a mistake because, you know, for years, that's how we saw movies. And now we're not used to that. And one of the benefits of 70 millimeter just so happens that – It reduces that flicker. So what you were getting, in a sense, was you were kind of getting the feel of digital, but yet you see the resolution and the look of film. Um, And so 70 millimeter in terms of K, like let's break it down to what people understand, right? They kind of understand what 4K is when they think of digital, right? For most projectors, when they first started coming out, were 2K. And there's a lot of local theaters that still have 2K projectors. 4K came out, and that's probably what most theaters have now. If you go to a Dolby cinema, they kind of use dual, I think, 4K projectors, give it kind of like an 8K feel, so that's pretty cool. Uh, I've been to see one Dolby digital experience. That was the last uh, John Wick movie, and it was pretty great, i got to be honest. And I think that if you get Laser IMAX, which is where I used to go, and they have not reopened. This has been in Reading, Mass., and they have not reopened since the pandemic, um, they have dual 4K laser projectors. So that's a pretty great image. So 8K, right? That's pretty amazing. That's got to be better than film, right? Well, that's about the equivalent of, you know, better than 35 millimeter film if you have 8K. But 70 millimeter is the equivalent of 12K. So think about that. (laughs) You're still getting a better image. It's more intense. Um, I would still wager that the majority of people seeing the movie probably were like, I don't know what the big deal is of the 70 millimeter. And that's fine. I don't know if this movie is like, you know, it's not filled with visual effects or anything. It's just kind of a different experience. The sound was certainly more intense in different spots of the soundtrack. It had that, it just had that 70 millimeter sound which is really cool. But I just thought it was a fantastic presentation and the fact that the movie is very subjective and dreamy-like in a very subtle way, I think the 70 millimeter enhanced that. It kind of burns those images into your brain so that like when I was taking the three-hour drive back home, I couldn't get the movie out of my mind. Right, It just was playing over and over again. Uh, I think it's a very powerful movie in that regard. It's not a movie for everybody, certainly. Um, even if you're a big fan of Paul Thomas Anderson, it's definitely one of the weirder ones. Uh, It's one of my favorites of his. Really really liked it and it also reminded me again how I enjoyed uh, seeing Licorice Pizza about a month ago and seeing that in 70mm and again it's just great that someone like Paul Thomas Anderson recognizes that there's a cachet that you can present this film in 70mm and kind of make it special and we kind of need that right now with film going to see these movies you want to have a little bit of extra reason to go out and see it in the theater and so in about a few more days licorice pizza is going to be out it will be in 70 millimeter in a bunch of spots and it's going to be a trick it's going to be tricky for people to decide whether or not to go out to a theater and see it certainly if you're younger you're probably going to be like yeah screw it i'm gonna go and you know good for you a little bit older it's going to be a little bit more of a question mark. I can't tell you you're going to be safe. Certainly, if you're going to go, try to pick a theater that's going to require vaccination and then wear an N95 mask. It's a pain, but you wear it and you're probably going to be good. So that is my particular advice. Uh, But uh, meanwhile, House of Gucci, you know, not a bad evening to watch it. It'll be on streaming soon. So check that out. West Side Story, shame that it's not doing well. I understand it. Like I said, should the movie have been made, I don't know. But it is a fantastic movie. It was a great experience. Certainly, if I saw more movies this year and could put a top ten together, it would be absolutely in my top ten. So when that comes to streaming, you should check that out. And then Inherent Vice is probably streaming somewhere. It's a great movie. It's a complex movie. It's a challenge. I think if you go in and question everything you're watching while it goes on and not taking any of it for real, that is going to be a way to unlock its secrets. Um, And then meanwhile, in a few days, Licorice Pizza is coming out. And I'm hoping that, uh, Shannon, you're out there, if you're listening, when you see it, and I know you will, we got to go talk about it because it's definitely a movie that I want to talk about with somebody who has seen it. Anyways, uh, you can always get in touch with me at moviemorlock@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Check me out on Instagram, and uh, you can catch this on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Well, if you're listening to it, you found it somewhere. Uh, but certainly spread the word. If you like me, I'm going to be back in the new year. Definitely going to continue doing some episodes. I wanted to do it every week. I just don't know if I'm getting there every week, but I'm still I'm getting there, all right? We're getting through it. Uh, you know, maybe 2022 will be a better year. We don't know. All right, people, have a great holiday and a safe holiday, please. It's a serious business out there with the COVID. And I want you all to be as safe as you can. So if you're not vaccinated, well, you're probably not listening to the show anyway. But uh, if you're still listening and you're not vaccinated, for God's sakes, kids, get vaccinated. Get the booster. That's another thing. My wife works in healthcare, and a lot of the breakthrough cases are people that didn't quite get their booster yet. So get that damn booster. Get it. All right, everyone. The Movie Morlock signing off. Later.